John, and thanks, <coughs> thanks guys for such a warm welcome. You know, it's one of the brilliant things about being part of the vineyard is that you can go into a vineyard church anywhere, really, in the world, and you know, be in a room full of people that are basically strangers, um, but feel that sort of unconditional warmth and acceptance of family, um, because we're brothers and sisters. Um, you know, first and foremost in Christ, but also we're part of the same tribe um, and uh, cut from the same cloth and we get passionate about the same things. Um, and um, we just, we want to say thank you for the welcome that we've had here. We had a lovely weekend in Bournemouth um, with John and Alice's family and we're just, yeah, we can't, we don't want to go home now. Um, and you guys, although the vineyard is a tribe where we're all kind of like cut from the same cloth, I want to say that I feel that Coastline Vineyard, I see you as kind of like the commandos of the, uh, of the vineyard, because whenever there's a conference, DTI, um, leaders gathering, whatever, you guys are always at the front, in numbers, in force, just going for it, you're passionate, and I think we see that um, that's because also here in this, um, in this place, in this, in, this, um, in this town, you are at the front line, you're going for it, you're, you're serving the last, the lost, and the least, and... Uh, Good on you. Keep going. I just want to encourage you this, this morning. Um, and this morning, I, I'm going to share, quite a lot of what I'm going to share today is kind of like about me. I promise I don't always talk about myself this much. Um, but I just want to share some of my stories so we can get to know each other a little bit. And I hope that something of it is of some um, encouragement to you guys. That sounds good. If you've got a Bible, you might want to open it in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Um, but I want to start by showing you um, an awkward photo of me. Um, this is me, aged 12 years old, I think, on my birthday, um, just before school. That's my new guitar that I got for my birthday that I'm brandishing. That is, you could, I don't know if you can make it out, of 80s Garfield the Cat wallpaper in the background. Pretty cool stuff. But the thing that I really want to draw your attention to is the picture that's on my bedroom wall in the background. And that is a picture of Caravaggio's Road uh, to Emmaus, the Supper at Emmaus picture. And I've got slightly better, oh there you go, you can see it there, and here's a slightly better version of it for you, because um, when I was a kid, I don't really know why, about the age of eight or nine years old, I decided that I wanted this picture on my wall, and I grew up in a council estate near Luton, so surprisingly few of my peers shared my affection for <laughs> Caravaggio and Baroque artists, but there you go. I don't really know where this picture came from, I thought that I wanted... Um, in a, in a tombola. My dad seems to think it came from a jumble sale. But for whatever reason, I loved it. And I remember when I was about 15, going to London to the National Gallery to have a look at the real version. And as, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it is an absolute masterpiece. It's an unbelievable picture. And um, Caravaggio has captured this moment um, from a story that we read in Luke's Gospel. And I'm just going to read it now. It's about these two pilgrims, followers of Jesus, who are traveling home after the, res after the crucifixion. They're dejected, they're disheartened, they're confused, and they have this encounter that changes their lives forever. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, Jesus, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces were downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And um, then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And... Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Now, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And this is what we're seeing here. And he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once. They'd done the walk. They went back to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And then the two told them what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. It's an amazing story. And um, I think Caravaggio, he captures something of this story in a beautiful way. It's the very second where they see Jesus for who he is. And the atmosphere in this painting is electric. I love, for example, the way this fruit bowl, if you can see it, it's like it's precariously hanging off the edge of the table. It's almost as though this guy's going to knock the table with his knee and the whole thing's just going to come tumbling out into the painting because there's so much electric atmosphere. And the light of illumination, of revelation, is there in the pilgrims' faces. Whilst, do you notice, this guy, the servant, he is both physically and spiritually in the shade. He's, he's yet to see what's going on and he is oblivious to the fact that he is waiting on the Creator and the Lord of the universe. It's magical. And whilst this story is not technically a parable, I think, you know, I mean, first and foremost, it's an account, it's a narrative of what happens. I think um, the way that Luke tells this story, it kind of has a parable-like nature. I think he's making a point the way he says it. You know, the equivalent version of this story in Mark's gospel is about three lines long. Classic Mark, he's just like, bosh. But Luke, he lingers he adds the details, the emotions, the narrative. And over, this, over the years, this story, and actually this painting, has had a profound effect on my life. It's spoken to me, um, and so I want to share a couple of things that I think this story highlights about the journey of faith. First thing is I think this story shows us that sometimes faith is mystery. It's a mystery. This encounter shows us how faith is a complex thing. At the start of the story, they're disillusioned, they're dejected, they have no faith. Jesus shows up, 
They don't even recognize him, which is weird, isn't it? Does anybody think that's a bit weird thing? Like, why don't they recognize him? Is it because, you know, they're just blinded by their despair? Is it because the resurrected Jesus looks, you know, eternally glorious and different? Is it because Jesus prevented them? The painting gives us the actual answer, by the way. Jesus shaved his beard off. So you can see, that's what it was. Only joking. Only joking. Anyway, what we do know is that um, (laughs) when Jesus does show up and they see him, they reflect these words. Verse 32. Were not our hearts burning as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So it seems that on the road even, they didn't have any faith, yet at the same time, they did. It's mysterious. And there are a few occasions in the Bible where it seems that you can, you, know, you can have no faith and loads of faith all at the same time. Like, do you remember the story of the, um, the father who brings his son to Jesus, um, asking that Jesus would heal his son? And he says, Jesus says, do you believe that I can do this? And the father says, I believe, help my disbelief. Like the two things all at the same time. Do you ever prayed a prayer like that? When, you know, somebody you know, tells you about a physical condition they've got, and it's a big thing. And in your mind, you, te- you, know, you remember, oh, yeah, I suppose I should probably pray for healing. And you know it's technically possible, but in your heart, you just can't see it happening. Or that person who you long to see come to faith, and you've longed for years for them to have that moment of revelation. And whilst you know that God is big enough to do that, there's part of you that just can never see it happening. Is there anybody, do you know anybody like that? In fact, to be honest, there's a situation going on right now in my life involving somebody that I love, and this is exactly where I am. I believe, Lord, would you help my disbelief? And what I love about this painting is that it captures something of that knife-edge moment where belief and disbelief mingle in the same space, where hope interrupts despair. There's, um, in describing the painting, an art critic journalist called Kelly Grovia, she's writing for the BBC, She says, Caravaggio captures a mystical threshold in that immeasurable instant between revelation and evaporation, poised as it is between our perishable realm and the eternal one that lies beyond. Fancy words. To use vineyard language, um, it's what um, Bible scholar Derek Morphew would describe as a moment of breakthrough, where the now of the kingdom of God is interrupting and existing within the same space as the not yet or the mystery of the kingdom of God, he might say. You know, Jesus taught us sometimes in a mysterious way. He said, the kingdom of God is here. It's within you. It's in your midst. But then at other times, we experience that the kingdom of God is yet to come. And this is a tension, and this is a mystery, isn't it? And in some like, parts of the church, in some denominations, there's an attempt to resolve this mystery by shifting one way and going, well, actually the, insisting that the kingdom should always be now. And that if you, you know, if you have enough faith, or if you pray the right words, then miracles will always happen, and prayers will always be answered. And then in other parts of the sort of the church, people try and resolve the mystery by going the other way and being like, oh, it's probably it's not, it's not yet. And there's it's sort of like there's alluding to the idea that we can't really ever, ever have any realistic expectation for God's kingdom to break in. And in the vineyard, we are amongst those who inhabit this radical middle, who, who, who kind of like live with that tension of the now and the not yet in our faith and in our lives, and we hold the belief that that's the best way of reconciling scripture and our experience of faith in God's kingdom. And that can be hard, can't it? And it can be uncomfortable when we long to see a moment of breakthrough, 
We long for our faces to be illuminated with the light of revelation of what God is doing, and yet we have to continue to plod on, walking in the shade. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And that might be where you are right now. And I think, in a a sense, I know that that's corporately, to some extent, where you guys are at as a church. You are currently building for a future that you cannot fully see. You are, you know, emptying your savings accounts. You are setting up eye-watering pledges. You are rummaging down the back of the sofa to see if there's any extra coins that you're just chucking in towards this thing without knowing clearly exactly what lies ahead. And that can be uncomfortable on a journey. But if we didn't have the waiting and we didn't have the why, then it wouldn't really be faith, would it? If it was all now, 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 it wouldn't be faith, would it? The mystery reminds us that faith is a journey. And that's the other thing that I love about this story. Like I said, this story is not technically a parable, but it's a bit like a, par- it's a parable-like quality. And I love the fact that this story happened on a journey on the road. It points to the fact that faith is not static. It's a journey with Jesus that we get to go on. And thankfully, we get to go on with companions like these two guys did. You know, think about the, the, the journey that these two folks had been on. They had been raised as Jews, studied the scriptures, longed for the Messiah to come and redeem Israel. And they had, you know, a few months before met Jesus. And they said, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel but they had witnessed Jesus fail. He had been humiliated on a cross. And when their hope was then at its lowest, that's when Jesus stepped in. And he walked with them on the road, and he pulled out the scriptures, the ones that they had learned when they were kids, the ones they knew by heart. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And as he did that, the pilot light that little flicker of faith that had all but gone out started to burn because there was something about this person. There was something about him. They lingered around him. They begged him to stay on for supper. And then right at the end, they saw him. And their journey was changed forever. And then if you notice, there's a parallel between this story of the two travelers on the road Really, and the whole big story of the Bible, because the defining moment of this story is the defining moment of this story. When all hope was lost, the author and the creator of the story stepped into the story, and he revealed that all the promises in the Old Testament, they pointed to him. It had always been about Jesus. It was always going to be about Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. He stepped in. And the the defining moment of this story is also, of course, the defining moment of our own personal stories. You know, we were just talking last night over pizza, and we do what Christians always do. We told us, how how did Jesus step into your life? How did it happen for you? Defining moment of our lives. And sometimes, just as these pilgrims learned, sometimes personally, it's only when you look back that you realize And think about your own story for a minute. He was there all along, wasn't he? He had a plan to save us, restore us, to lead us into the calling that he has on our lives. Um, And uh, as John alluded to, in a few months' time, I'm stepping into sort of like a new chapter of um, my personal story. I'm taking the leadership 
um, senior pastor role at Trent Vineyard, Vineyard Church up in Nottingham. And it's a bit daunting. Um, and also, when you look back, part of, you, part of me is a little bit like, how on earth did this happen? <laughs> it's kind of a joke. Um, I haven't really got time to go into detail, but essentially, my story is not a textbook story of how to raise up a pastoral figure. Um, just to give you the gist, I grew up um, in a Catholic home. Um, so I sort of, as a kid, I had a belief that there was a God, but I didn't really have a, like, a relationship with God. And um, a lot of the time, faith felt more like something that you was, I was supposed to believe because everybody, all my like the grown-ups around me did, rather than something I believed for myself. And I remember, in fact, saying to my mum one Christmas time, um, I don't believe in Santa, and while I'm at it, I don't believe in Jesus either. And that did not go down well. <laughs> and my home environment wasn't exactly optimal um, for raising a balanced pastoral figure. Um, it was a loving home, um, but it was a bit chaotic and dysfunctional, and at times it didn't feel very safe as well. There was the presence of um, alcohol addiction in my home, acute mental health illness, bipolar disorder, and terminal cancer. My mum died when I was in my teenage years. And so by the time I reached young adulthood, I was kind of um, a little bit traumatised by that, I guess, and I was conditioned to be quite a risk-averse, fearful person. I was insecure and anxious. I made some really bad choices in my elderly teen years and then young adulthood, really looking for affirmation and security in all the wrong places. And then I remember, um, in terms of like faith, I got to university, and I remember learning the first night, to my utter dismay, that I had this roommate who was one of those overbearing, charismatic Christian types. <laughs> you know, the kind of person. And he came up to me on the first night, and he said to me, don't think for a moment that I haven't been put next to you to help you, f by God, to help you find your way to God. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> he was overbearing, he was irritating, and he was 100% correct <laughs> about all of it. And he's, uh, yeah. And he's one of my closest friends today. Um, in terms of the vineyard, the first time he brought me to the vineyard, my reflection was, that was weird. And I didn't come back for a year. So if you're inviting people, um, you know, if you're here, by the way, for the first time, um, it is weird. Don't wait a year. Just come back. They're all right. <laughs> but as far as involvement in church and like leadership development, was, I remember the day Abby, my wife, suggested I do the discipleship program at uh, Trent Vineyard, which was run by a guy called Aid Aldridge, who you might know. And, um, and I said to Abby, that course is for people who don't know what they want to do with their life. And she was like, that's you. <laughs> so I did that. But basically, to cut a long story short, I'm trying to stress that my journey has not been this kind of quintessential journey. It's featured twists and unpredictable turns. I haven't had a clue where it's going. There's been no game plan whatsoever. And even right now, I am fully overwhelmed about what is just about to happen next. And yet, I realize that when I look back, at the same time, alongside the ups and the downs, has my heart not been burning as I've walked along the way? I remember, for example, my heart burning when I was about eight or nine years old, and I woke up one night with a nightmare, and I was shaking, and I, I, prayed, I just cried out, and I prayed the Lord's Prayer, because that was all I really knew to pray, and the fear drained from my body. I remember the, the time my heart burned when my home felt particularly unsafe and chaotic one night. My mum was very sick. My dad was on the edge, and this Christian 
a friend of the family um, just, just suddenly out of the blue showed up and she came into our home and suddenly everything felt safe and calm. Although I was highly cringing in the moment, I hate to admit it, but my heart burned that night. My crazy friend said he'd been sent into my life by God. And it burned during that discipleship year at church when I served on about a billion rotors and loved every bit of it and began to realize, I think this is what God made me to do. And a while ago, I was reflecting on all this kind of stuff and I was reading this story in the Bible. And I remember I sat at my desk and I was reading it, and it really reflects me, it sort of like really struck me that though my journey is still unfolding, and though I can't, still can't see much further than the end of my nose, I've come to recognize that he, he, he uses the journey to prepare us for what's to come. And amidst all the ups and downs and the disappointments, he uses it all to craft us, to refine us and, and guide us, and he's there with us whether we realize it or not, so that when that moment of revelation does happen, we're prepared and we're ready to go, aren't we? And it just, I was reading this story and it just struck me, this story, the road to Emmaus, is how it is. This is how the Christian journey works. And I'm embarrassed that it took about th- like three decades for that penny to drop, but I was sat there reading it and I looked up and of course, on my wall, what's right there is this same battered picture that's been there since I was about eight years old. It's followed me around from house to house, and it's there. It's been looking down at me because Jesus has been there all the time. And I realized that my heart had been burning as I walked along the road. Just final story um, about this is that around about that time when I was that sort of age as a kid, um, I was about nine, I think, and one Saturday afternoon, my dad walks into the living room and announces to me that he, we're going to go and help a friend do some decorating. And he gives me a bucket. And at the time, I was looking forward to an afternoon of just like playing Lego on the floor and listening to the football on the radio. And so this was all a bit of a blow, like manual labor, enforced. And so um, I was grumpy in the car until we pull up and we get out and we start walking towards this guy's house. And it turns out, and we're walking through these back streets towards his house, he lives near... Um, the home of Luton Town Football Club, the mighty Kenilworth Road. Um, and at the time, the streets were packed because Luton were in the, the, the top flight in those days. And in fact, they have just been promoted back to the Premiership this year. And so Bournemouth, we're coming after you. Um, but um, anyway, Kenilworth Road. And so we were walking, there was all the fans and they were all cheering and we sort of got sort of swept up in that. And I was just loving this experience, you know, just hearing everybody cheering. And I remember thinking to myself, isn't this man really lucky to live so close to the football ground? Because when you're a kid, you think things like that. And then all of a sudden, we turn this corner, and the back of the ground is just there in front of us, um, soaring up in front of us. That's a little bit of artistic license there. And, um, and to my utter amazement, my dad just strides ahead of me, and he walks up to the turnstile, and he just looks back at me. He's like, come on, we're going in. And, um, and I was like, what? And I remember my heart was racing as I clattered through this turnstile, still got the bucket in my hand. <laughs> and we spill out onto the terrace. And then I notice there's a problem because I'm about four foot six and it's a standing terrace and there's all men, you know, there and I can't see the ground. And then I remember looking at my dad and looking in my hand and everything clicked into place. And I put the bucket on the ground and I stepped onto the bucket, and in a heartbeat, I grew a foot in stature. (laughs) And this 
little story is the thing that I feel God has put on my, sh- my heart to share with you, is that faith is a mystery. It's a journey where we don't get to see the destination, but our Heavenly Father knows the destination, and He has good things in store. And sometimes He gives us things to carry on that journey, and we don't see it at the time, but it's the thing that we're going to need later on. And sometimes he gives you something to carry that, and you might be carrying something right now in your life that feels like a bucket, a trial, a challenge, a disappointment. It it might not be a good thing, but in years to come, God has this way of it becoming the thing that you stand on, like faith, refined and proved in experience. The thing that you see from, You know, that thing that there will come a day where you'll turn, what you're going through now, there'll come a day where you'll turn to people around you and say, guys, it's going to be okay. I have been and seen here before, and God is with us, and he is good. You know, think of, uh, you know, people like, I've got friends in our church, like this guy, a couple, Ronnie and Jackie, they nearly nearly lost their lives to alcoholism decades ago. Um, But in the years since, they have led literally hundreds of people to freedom, and many to the Lord through leading Alcoholics Anonymous groups. I think of a lady called Rose who she experienced abuse as a child and she spent the last 20 years in our church seeking out those who've sustained the same and helping them get healed of their wounds and trauma. I think of a friend of mine called Tom who came exploring faith to our church a few years ago, just really embattled by mental health challenges. And now he leads a group um, for people experiencing the same thing to support them. And so some of you, the thing that you're going through now, in years to come, it'll be the thing you stand on. It'll be the thing you see from. And for others of you, the thing that you're carrying right now in your hand is, um, is, is that burning, flickering flame in your heart. You sense that God has something ahead, but you can't quite see what it is yet. And you long for revelation. You long for clarity And it may be that even in the midst of uncertainty and disappointment, you know, you're literally just left with the pilot light that's flickering now. That's what you're down to. If that's you, I feel that my purpose today is to encourage you, is to encourage you to keep walking and suggest that that is kind of how it works sometimes. That's how this journey works. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. And if that resonates with you, what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to pause and we're going to wait and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to remind us of his presence with us. And I want to leave you with this question. Even now, in the midst of the mystery and the journey, even now, though your destination is not clear, is your heart not burning within you as you walk along the road?